Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. It's September, and we just finished talking about the Alien franchise last month, and we're ready to start a brand new franchise. That's right. We're not taking a breath. We're not giving ourselves any time to recover from major franchises. We're going straight into A Nightmare on Elm Street. That's right. One of the longest horror franchises of all time. Longest and thickest. That's right. And we're (laughs) thick with two Cs. And we are not going to be covering all of them. I think we're going to stop around in like five or something like that, right? We're going to skip around once we get past like three or four. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. But we're getting ahead of ourselves because A Nightmare on Elm Street is a 1984 American supernatural slasher film written and directed by Wes Craven and produced by Robert Shea. It's the first installment in a very large franchise, as we just said. stars Heather Longenkamp, John Saxon, Ronnie Blakely, and Johnny Depp in his first major role. Robert England appears as Freddy Krueger, a character that would become one of the most beloved horror villains of all time. Mm. The film's plot is focused on a group of teenagers who are dreaming of the same burned man with a glove fitted with knives, who eventually begins to kill them off. The film borrows from many tropes found in low-budget slasher films in the 70s and 80s, but subverts them by adding the concept of dreams into the mix, creating a world where reality and imagination are blurred. Okay, listeners. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. This is A Nightmare on Elm Street. The kids of Elm Street don't know it yet, but something is coming to get them. There's something out there, isn't there? We just see cuts happen. What did that, Lieutenant? I don't know. There's a coroner got to say. It's in the jaw and puking since he saw it. You're gonna kill me for sure. Did you do it? There was somebody else there. He was locked in a room with a girl who went in alive and came out in a rubber bag. No one knows where it came from or who it will visit next. Nancy, there's something wrong with you. You're imagining things. Nightmare on Elm Street. Do you believe in the boogeyman? No. Whatever you do, don't she's the only one who can stop it if she fails i'm your boyfriend now nancy no one will survive Craven, director of The Hills Have Eyes and Last House on the Left. A new masterpiece in fantasy terror. Nightmare on Elm Street. In the early 1980s, teenager Tina Gray, played by Amanda Weiss, awakens from a terrifying nightmare. In her dream, a disfigured man wearing a blade-fixed glove attacks her in a boiler room. Her dream man must have gotten handsy because her mother points out four mysterious slashes on her nightgown when she wakes her. 
The following morning, Tina's best friend, Nancy Thompson, played by Heather Langenkamp, and Nancy's boyfriend, Glenn Lance, played by Johnny Depp, console her, revealing that they each also had a nightmare the previous night. The two stay at Tina's house when Tina's mother goes out of town, where she discovers that Nancy also had a nightmare about the disfigured man. Tina's boyfriend, Rod Lane, interrupts their sleepover, as he is young, dumb, and full of cum. (laughs) When Tina falls asleep after having obnoxiously loud sex with Rod, she dreams of the disfigured man chasing her. Rod is awakened by Tina's thrashing, and sees her dragged and fatally slashed by an unseen force. Rod helplessly watches as Tina rides and squirms bloodily across the walls and ceiling for about three hours until, <laughs> until finally forcing him to flee through the window. Nancy and Glenn awaken to find Tina bloodied and dead, the walls painted with the blood of their dead, ditzy friend. <laughs> the next day, Nancy's policeman father, Don Thompson, played by John Saxon, arrests Rod despite his pleas of innocence. At school, Nancy falls asleep in class and dreams that the man chases her to the boiler room where she is cornered. She then deliberately burns her arm on a pipe. The burn startles her awake in class and she notices a burn mark on her arm. Nancy visits Rod at the police station, who describes Tina's death along with his own recent nightmares about the same man stalking her in her dreams, making Nancy believe that man killed Tina. At home, Nancy falls asleep in the bathtub and is nearly molested and drowned by the nasty burned man. Nancy then depends on caffeine to stay awake and invites Glenn to watch over her as she sleeps. In her dream, Nancy sees the man prepare to kill Rod in his cell, but he then turns his attention toward her. Nancy runs away and wakes up when her alarm clock goes off. The man kills Rod by wrapping bedsheets around his neck, staging it as a suicide via hanging. At Rod's funeral, Nancy's parents become worried when she describes her dreams. Her mother, Marge, played by Ronnie Blakely, takes her to a sleep disorders clinic where, in a dream, Nancy grabs the man's fedora with the name Fred Krueger written in it and manages to bring it back with her into the real world. After barricading the house, her mom explains that Krueger was an insane child murderer who killed 20 neighborhood children but was released on a technicality and then burned alive by the victim's parents living on their street, seeking vigilante justice. Nancy realizes that Kruger, now a vengeful ghost, is killing her and her friends out of revenge and to satiate his psychotic pedo needs. Nancy tries to call Glenn to warn him, but his father prevents her from speaking to him. Glenn falls asleep and is killed by Kruger. Now alone, Nancy puts her mom to sleep and asks her father, who is across the street investigating Glenn's death, to break into the house in 20 minutes. Nancy rigs booby traps around the house Home Alone style and grabs Kruger out of the dream and into the real world. The booby traps affect Kruger enough that Nancy can light him on fire and lock him in the basement. As the pedo and probable Brody... As the pedo and probable brony is burning, Nancy rushes to the front door for help. The police arrive to find that Kruger has escaped from the basement. Nancy and her father go upstairs to find a burning Kruger smothering her mom in her bedroom. After her father extinguishes the fire, Kruger and her mother vanish into the bed. When her father leaves the room, Kruger rises from the bed behind Nancy. Realizing that Kruger is powered by his victim's fear, she calmly turns her back to him. Kruger evaporates when he attempts to lunge at her. Nancy steps outside into an obviously still a dream bright and foggy morning where all her friends and her mother are still alive. 
As Nancy gets into Glenn's convertible to go to school, the top suddenly comes down and locks them in as the car drives away. Three girls in white dresses playing jump rope are heard chanting Kruger's nursery rhyme. As Nancy's mother is grabbed by Kruger, turned into an inflatable sex doll, and pulled through the front window. <laughs> you know that's what it looks like. <laughs> it just turned into an inflatable fucking doll. <laughs> Yoink! <laughs> God bless that brony. <laughs> A Nightmare on Elm Street was released on November 9th, 1984. It grossed almost 1.3 million opening weekends, securing the number 10 spot at the box office. The film would hover near the bottom of the top 10 through its theatrical run, but by mid-January, it would reach the number 2 spot. Took a long time for that shit. The film was instantly considered a commercial success. Ultimately, during its original run, the film grossed $57 million against a reported budget of $1.1 million. Of course, this doesn't include the copious amounts of money it would earn in the new home video market and its subsequent re-releases. That's right. A Nightmare on Elm Street holds 95% on Rotten Tomatoes and is certified fresh, of course. The audience score sits at 84% and the site's consensus reads... Wes Craven's intelligent premise, combined with the horrifying visual appearance of Freddy Krueger, still causes nightmares to this very day. That's right. In a contemporary review, Kim Newman wrote in the monthly film bulletin that A Nightmare on Elm Street was closer to a Stephen King adaptation with its small-town setting and invented monster myth. Newman concluded that the film found Craven emerging from his recent career slump, which included things like Swamp Thing, The Hills Have Eyes Part Two, Invitation to Hell with a fine, perhaps definitive, boogeyman to back him up, and that the film was a superior example of an overworked genre. The review commented negatively on some of the scenes involving Nancy's family, noting that the movie's worst scenes involved Nancy and her alcoholic mother. On the character development, Newman stated that the impression that the 200 pages worth of characterization had been compressed into cliché details like boozy Ronnie Blakely demonstrating her renewed self-respect by throwing away half a bottle. Newman also said that the nightmare in the film worked against itself, stating that while the kissing telephone and bottomless bathtub are disorienting in the Cronenberg spirit, they get in the way of the relentless pursuing monster aspect that Carpenter manages so well. Hmm. Paul Atmasio of the Washington Post praised the film, stating that, quote, For such a low-budget movie, Nightmare on Elm Street is extraordinarily polished. The script is consistently witty. The camera work by cinematographer Jacques Haitlin, or Haitken, is crisp and expressive. The review noted that, quote, The genre has built-in limitations, but Graven faces the challenge admirably. A Nightmare on Elm Street is halfway between an exploitation flick and classic surrealism. End quote. The review also commented on Freddy Krueger, calling him, quote, the most chilling figure in the genre since The Shape from Halloween made its debut. Variety commented that the film was a highly imaginative horror film, praising the special effects while finding the film fa- fails to tie up his thematic threads satisfyingly at the conclusion. Um, it got some nominations at the Saturn Awards. It was nominated for Best Horror Film, but lost to Gremlins. And it was also nominated for Best Performance by a Younger Actor, um, Ju Garcia. Wow, really? Okay. But at the time, he played it was, Ron. Huh? And he played Ron? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Rod. Rod? Yeah, that's what it was. Okay. Rod, Rod, Rod von Hugendong? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and uh, there's a reason for that. We'll go into the fun facts. Ooh, okay. 
if everyone doesn't already know everything about this movie that is which is our biggest fear really right yeah well <laughs> see i I'm, i've never really followed that much into it yeah um so i learned a lot but i also know there's like dozens of documentaries that at least lightly go over this you know mm-hmm. this film and i know that there's been novelizations and there's been making ofs and interviews for decades so i don't presume to think that i've uncovered anything new here but maybe there's a few tidbits that uh, enthusiasts might learn or get a new flavor of i'm sure there's gonna be things that i'll learn from it i'm yeah. looking forward to that so in 2010, the Independent Film and Television Alliance selected the film as one of the 30 most significant independent films of the last 30 years. It ranked at number 17 on Bravo's The 100 Scariest Movie Moments from 2004, and in 2008, Empire ranked A Nightmare on Elm Street 162nd on their list of 500 greatest movies of all time. It was also selected by the New York Times as one of the best 1,000 movies ever made. Wow. I mean, that seems like a foolhardy thing to do the best 1000 movies ever made yeah the afi ranked it number 40 on the 100 years 100 best heroes and villains list and in 2021 the film was selected for preservation in the united states national film registry by the library of congress as being culturally historically or aesthetically significant wow really okay been a while since we got to say that. Yeah, the film spawned six successful sequels, one franchise crossover film, and a TV series that ran for two seasons. A remake of the original film was released in 2010, and while being a financial success, it was critically panned. The film and its central villain has lived on in numerous pop culture references and will do so forever. And ever? And ever. So let's talk about the background of this movie a little bit. I do have to get the basics out. I know this has been done over and over. So hopefully the non-enthusiasts, the fans but Mm non-enthusiasts maybe will be okay with this, right? So um, A Nightmare on Elm Street contains a lot of biographical elements from director Wes Craven's childhood. Yes. So you knew that. I did. So you'll be a good like test for me to see how much things you already knew. Well, and to be fair though, I mean like, as a caveat to this episode, like A Nightmare on Elm Street is my favorite horror franchise. Yes, right? it is. With, yeah. uh, I think, the third yeah, the one. Th- Dream Warriors is my ultimate favorite, always, yeah. you know. But, I mean, all the movies are good in their own particular way, even the really bad ones. And I've just seen these movies a lot, like many, many times throughout my life. And there's, like, there's this four-hour documentary that sort of, like, chronicles all of it, right? I've yeah. seen that, like, three times. Okay, well, then yeah. you're going to know most of this stuff, but... The basis of the film was inspired by several newspaper articles printed in the Los Angeles Times in the 1970s about the Hmong refugees who, Mm -hmm. after fleeing to the United States because of war and genocide and Laos in Cambodia and Vietnam, suffered disturbing nightmares and refused to sleep. And some of the men actually died in their sleep soon after, and medical authorities called the phenomenon the Asian Death Syndrome. The condition affected men between the ages of 19 and 57 and was believed to be either like sudden unexplained death syndrome or Brugada syndrome or both. And Brugada is like an electrical disturbance in the heart, as far as I know. I was going to ask. I did not know what that was. Yeah. And so there was this like this this rash of of people Mm -hmm. essentially that were dying in their sleep that had the shared experience. And so that's, you know, terrifying. It is. I mean, from a real life perspective, to even know that like PTSD or things like that can disturb you so much that you would like dream yourself to death, right? Yeah. So Craven had said it was a series of articles in the LA Times, three small articles about men from Southeast Asia who were from immigrant families and had died in the middle of nightmares. 
And the paper never correlated them. And they never said, hey, we've had another story like this. It seems like something that would be news, though, right? At I, least well, it was in the news, obviously. That's oh, how yeah. we heard of it, you know, but it was never like went back and, and thought about because it just couldn't, there was nothing to thread it back to. Yeah. And nothing like it had happened around that before or afterwards, at least on mass with a shared experience like that. And I wonder how much this is studied now, though. Although maybe you might have something about that later on. No, I, I don't. Um, you know, that's that's the the most of that thread that I put that I picked. You know, mm-hmm. so. but I, I do know that Craven was heavily influenced on those articles, and it really got his brain working. Yeah, so. and and you know, uh, along with some other things, obviously, like in 1970s, uh, there was a pop song called Dreamweaver. And we all know that song, or you'd be able to remember it when you hear it, which is by Gary Wright. Um, and that kind of sealed the story for Craven, giving him not only artistic setting to jump off from, but a synthesizer riff for the movie soundtrack. And if you watch, or actually if you listen to the whole song, like the original song, it begins really fucking creepily. Yeah. And there's like a horror riff synthesizer at the beginning of the song that has nothing to do melody-wise with the rest of that song. And so it sounds very, very close to what A Nightmare on Elm Street would eventually sound like. I like that song a lot. And I liked it a lot when I was a teenager, like a young teenager. And this probably explains why I liked Dreamweaver so much when I was younger. Yeah. And uh, other sources attribute the inspiration of the film to be uh, actually a 1968 student film project made by Craven's students at Clarkson University. And the student film was actually a parody of contemporary horror films and was uh, filmed along Elm Street in Potsdam, New York. I didn't know that. So that's interesting to me, especially because 1968 student film project would be going over things like maybe Rosemary's Baby or something like or earlier and and not really something that was significantly in the current slasher genre. And so I'm thinking also uh, Wes Craven was influenced by uh, Stephen King a little bit in places. And then and then later on, Stephen King actually being influenced by Wes Craven in it, which wasn't published until 1987. And then again with the it chapter two with some elements later on, and we'll talk about that later. Oh, fully. In the, I mean, in the movie versus the book. So it's like, yeah, pop culture imitating pop culture imitating pop culture, and written just like this endless cycle. It's interesting. I can see though, in 1968, like you would have a lot of like dreamlike horror films because that was kind of the style of filmmaking in the 60s, right? For certain things, I would certainly say that Rosemary's Baby is kind of dreamlike. Right? There's a dream sequence for sure. That is true. That's right. I forgot about that. Very famous dream sequence. That's right. With a whole satany rape. Yeah, listen to our deep dive of that. That was published a couple of years back. Mm-hmm. It was a February episode. Yes, it was. So uh, as far as Freddy is concerned, Freddy Krueger is drawn from Craven's early life. So one night, a young West Craven saw an elderly man walking on the side path outside the window of his home. And the man stopped to glance at a startled Craven and then walked off. And this served as the inspiration and look of Freddy Krueger. Can you imagine? Like. I would shit my pants. If he just stopped and then looked up at you in the window. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So obviously he never forgot about it, but it's also about his own adolescent experiences um, that led him to name it Freddy Krueger. 
as he had been bullied at school by a child named Fred Krueger. And Craven had actually done the same thing in his film The Last House on the Left from 1972, where the villain's name was shortened to Krug. And he's a real fucking bad dude. That that movie's so that that bully gave us some cinema gold, and really did a fucking number on Wes Craven. Apparently, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. So uh, initially, Fred Krueger was actually intended to be a child molester. Obviously, you can read through the lines there. Uh, but Craven eventually characterized him as a child murderer to avoid being accused of exploiting a spate of highly publicized child molestation cases that occurred in California around the same time as the production of the movie. So like McMartin, right? All that I, stuff. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't follow molestation cases. Well, that was a very pointed <laughs> comment, but I mean, it's famous. So, like, there was this preschool, right? And uh, all the people at the preschool, Zabroni, wasn't it? Probably. I mean, ultimately, all the teachers and owners of the school were accused of molesting all the children, and so, like, it's famous because they were talking to these kids and these kids were saying like the most ridiculous things. Like they lead us downstairs into this basement sex dungeon, blah, blah, blah. There's almost like zero evidence of any of this. And these people were convicted of being molesters when they really were not. Ew. On Freddie's nature, Craven stated that quote, in a sense, Freddie stands for the worst of parenthood and adulthood, the dirty old man, the nasty father and the adult who wants children to die rather than help them prosper. He's the boogeyman. And the worst fear of children, the adult that's out to get them, he's a very primal figure, sort of like Kronos devouring his children, that evil, twisted, perverted father figure that wants to destroy and is able to get them at their most vulnerable moment, which is when they're asleep. Hmm. And I'm going to say, calm down, Wes Craven. Let's not compare this to classical Greek literature. We're talking about mythology again with this. And I was (laughs) like, I don't really get that, but okay. I mean, he's iconic, but I don't want to say he's like tied to like Shakespearean or Greek mythology or something. You know what I mean? No, I mean, obvious. I mean, like if, if he's pulling things from his own life, he's like, not exactly like an Iago or something. You know what I mean? No. Well, and the thing is, if, if Craven is basing this off like uh, a bully or something that he had experienced, right? And I mean, personal trauma is personal and we tend to think it's like the most important right and so obviously he would take something that happened in his own life and say you know what it's very much like greek mythology or whatever put a lot into yeah, it. yeah or the cruel cruel adult world you know springing them itself upon the the you know adolescent youth you know whatever so i oftentimes don't think of teenagers as children though you know what i mean so it's kind of hard for me to I oftentimes think of 20 year olds and people in their 20s as as children in adult bodies i mean so, we shouldn't though these people are adults quote unquote i mean but they act that way right? legally but you know if i respected anyone that was making the laws then i'd be able to agree with it i mean because we we tend to see in this movie that he's murdering like young children right mm-hmm but then he's going after teenagers now. And maybe that's just the point because that was the market or whatever for the movie. Yeah. And that's part of why, I mean, this is fitting an archetype versus a theme or any kind of like yes. historical mythology. Right. That's right. Uh, and I don't want to get, you know, too heavy with it because this is not a heavy character or a heavy franchise. It's meant to, uh, as much as be terrifying, as much as, you know, make light of some other horror figures like Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees. That's true. Especially as the franchise goes on as well. Exactly. Right. That said, he also wanted to make Kruger different from the horror horror film villains of the era. And he said, quote, a lot of killers were wearing masks, Leatherface, Michael Myers, Jason. He recalled in 2014, I wanted my villain to have a mask, but be able to talk and taunt and threaten. So I thought of him being burnt and scarred. 
He also felt that the killer should use something other than a knife because it was too common. So he made it four knives. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but he said, uh, so I thought, how about glove with steak knives? I gave the idea to our special effects guy, Jim Doyle, and ultimately two models of the glove were built. The hero glove that was only used whenever anything needed to be cut and the stunt glove that was less likely to cause injury. And for a time, Craven had considered a sickle as the weapon of choice for the killer. But around the third or fourth drafts of the script, the iconic glove had become his final choice. And thank God. Yeah, a sickle would have been a little, you know. It's cumbersome. A sickle and then, I don't know, a pitchfork. What would be next, you know? I mean, it's a little on the nose, too. Like, chasing someone in their dreams. I mean, it's stupid. I don't know. Thank God. Thank God we had that glove because it is iconic, right? I mean, like, when you think of a Nightmare on Elm Street, you always think of Freddy Krueger. And when Freddy Krueger has this iconic weapon. I should make it more realistic for the newer adaptions, though, and make it like, I don't know, Ted Cruz following you with like a (laughs) fucking Bible or something. (laughs) With a switchblade in it. (laughs) Ted Cruz with a Bible. Horrifying. So um, at that point, you know, with the writing uh, ready to go, because this is where all the inspirations had come from, he actually began writing the screenplay for Nightmare on Elm Street around 1981, after he had finished production on Swamp Thing from 1982. He pitched it to several studios, but each of them rejected it for different reasons. The first studio that actually showed interest was actually Walt Disney Productions. (laughs) I didn't know that either. Although they wanted Craven to tone down the content to make it suitable for children and preteens, and obviously Craven declined, thank God. (laughs) And he was hungry, right? Because he was in a slump and he needed money, but he said no to Disney because he wanted this. He, He really believed in this concept. You know, and he didn't want to water it down. And another studio Craven pitched to was Paramount, uh, which passed on the project due to its similarity to their own project, Dreamscape, from 1984, I believe. It's another good movie. And then uh, Universal Studios also passed. And Craven, who was then desperate for personal and financial straits, later framed the company's rejection later on his wall in his office, which reads in this December 14th, 1982 print, Quote, we reviewed the script you have submitted, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Unfortunately, the script did not receive enthusiastic enough response from us to go forward at this time. However, when you have finished print, please get in touch and we would be delighted to screen it for a possible negative pickup. (laughs) Basically, if you make the movie for free, we might might distribute. I don't know. That's right. Uh, I like that affected voice, though. I'm pretty sure it's what they sounded like. Yeah, probably. But finally, the fledgling and independent New Line Cinema Corporation, which had up to that point only distributed films, agreed to produce the film. And during filming, New Line's distribution deal for the uh, for the film actually fell through. And for two weeks, it was unable to pay its cast and crew. Although New Line has gone on to make bigger and more profitable films, A Nightmare on Elm Street was its first commercial success in the studio it often referred to as the house that Freddy built. And it was known as that for the entirety of that company's life. And I, you know what? I, I keep <clears throat> hearing stories of how New Line kind of saved things. It saved all of New, uh, all of Lord of the Rings. And it was banking on it. It banked on this movie, and it banked on Lord of the Rings, and it banked on a couple others, and then it succeeded. It wasn't until later when it kind of collapsed like a flan in a cupboard. Well, I feel... <laughs> I feel like Robert Shea like really knows what he's doing and he knows what movies to like to stop and and pick, right? Mm-hmm. And when we get to New Nightmare eventually, like Robert Shea is an actual character in that movie, right? Because it's all sort of meta. Yeah. And I mean, he really is like just as much a creator and forefront person for Freddy Krueger that Wes Craven is. I mean, like the two of these men making this movie really created something special. And of course his wife 
That's right. Lin Shay. Lin Shay. Teacher in this film. Nightmare Red Others. (laughs) 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 Made me think of Pinhead when you said that. (laughs) A pleasure to some. (laughs) We financed, we hired Lin Shay. So lacking the funds, New Line actually had to depend on external independent financiers. And according to Shea, all the film's original investors backed out at one point or another during pre-production. The original budget was 700000 and ended up being $1.1 million. Half the funding came from a Yugoslavian guy who had a girlfriend he wanted in the movies. Oh, God, was she in this movie? I don't know. <laughs> well, God bless him. It was Lin Shea. No. <laughs> <laughs> so then we get to a casting. Yes, because I mean, like, I really like this original movie and this franchise does something kind of odd and for its sequel does not have any other of the main characters, right? We have Final Girls and such and they're just not revisited. And I think it's because Wes Craven didn't want to come back and do it. That's true. Right. And so that's he, he did not come back and do Freddy Revenge. No. And so I think a lot of the actors kind of got a hold of that and didn't want to do it either because of that. But I think the cast in this movie is really, really good for the most part. Yes. Yeah, yeah. sure. Although I'm sure by then Johnny Depp had was well in his way. Oh, he was doing some 21 Jump Streeping or whatever it's called. Sure. Yeah. He might have been tied up in that. But yeah. this was his first movie. That's right. This is interesting. So actor David Warner was actually originally cast to play Freddy. Did you know that? I did not know that. R.A.P. David Warner, by I know. the way. And he's a big in, in horror and sci-fi and really all genre films. I can see it, though. Yeah, I love David Warner. I mean, another one of my favorite horror movies is Waxwork, which we've already done a bonus episode on. He's in that. Right? Yeah, I, I can't really imagine Freddy Krueger talking in a British accent, you know. Uh, he might have classed it up a little bit, you know. <laughs> Maybe a Gatwick Airport accent. Hello, Nancy. <laughs> <laughs> Are you dreaming again? <laughs> That's not how David Warner sounds. Yeah. <laughs> So Kane Hodder, who would uh, later be best known for playing fellow slasher icon Jason Voorhees, was among those who Wes Craven talked about with the role of Freddy. And according to Hodder, he said, quote, I had a meeting with Wes Craven about playing a character he was developing called Freddy Krueger. At the time, Wes wasn't sure what kind of person he wanted in the role of Freddy. So I was as good shot as anybody else. He was initially thinking of a big guy for the part, and he was also thinking of somebody who had real burn scars. But obviously, he changed his whole line of thinking and went with Robert England, who's smaller. I would have loved to play the part, but I do think West made the right choice. I agree. I mean, like, Keane Hodder, as good as he is in the roles that he does, right? He can't be Freddy. Like, Freddy is... Yeah. Someone who has to speak and quip and be quick, right? And I just don't see Kane Hodder doing any of that. David Warner is much closer to what Freddy Krueger actually is at heart. So, Well, it's, it's really interesting because it's like they really wanted to differentiate Freddy from the other killers. And yet their knee jerk, uh, or at least the casting agent, was to find someone big and imposing, right? But that's not who this character is. No, and probably not on paper either. Yeah. This is when it comes down to, I would say, like, you have to find something that's already mainstream, already popular, already something that people are familiar with, right? And it's good to create something original, which is what this movie is. Yeah. So Wes said, quote, I couldn't find an actor to play Freddy Krueger with the sense of ferocity I was seeking. He recalled in the film's 30th anniversary Everybody was too quiet, too compassionate towards children. Then Robert England auditioned. 
He wasn't as tall as I'd hoped, and he had baby fat on his face, but he impressed me with his willingness to go to dark places in his mind. Robert understood Freddy. And of course, there's another anecdote that I didn't put in our notes about Robert England being kind of told, like, everyone's auditioning for this the wrong way. Like, this is like a child murderer, not like a teenager murderer. Mm. And, you know, all of those guys are like these small, diminutive, like, weaselly guys. So go in there and, like, act like a weasel. And so he put, like, cigarette ash underneath his eyes and hunched over and would speak, like, really, you know, quiet and weaselly and stuff and be, like, really dark and... Um, and that's, that was so different than what everyone else was doing. Then Wes Craven kind of got attached to that. And that's the right way to do it though. Those people who were giving him that advice were correct, you know? And I feel like. I believe it was his agent. Yeah. Probably. And I, this makes me think about the remake a little bit. Right. And I mean, we can talk about it for a second. We're not going to cover this remake on the podcast because it's kind of garbage. Not, not even kind of. Well, the remakes, uh, Freddy Krueger has something to do with this movie, which is interesting to me. Really? Yes. I mean, but that's the way they portray Freddy Krueger in those flashbacks in the, in the remake that we don't have in this one, really, right? Yeah. He's kind of that weaselly, pedo-looking kind Brony, of person. Yeah. Yeah, right? <laughs> the, kind of, the kind of person that you keep your children away from, although that doesn't really happen in the remake. They openly, like, send their children to him, but... That's beside the point. But you're right. I mean, talking about casting Freddy and going back to Kane Harder, I mean, like that that's he seems like a child murderer for the wrong reasons, right? Like some big buff mass murderer. Yeah. Freddy Krueger is a smart individual. He's cunning, right? Maybe a little weaselly. And he's certainly like that after his death. I mean, like, who knows how he acted in real life as a child murderer, but when he's dead and stalking people in their dreams, he's like a child murderer with I don't know, some sort of like courageous sense of humor. I it's he becomes yeah. a different kind of person. He enjoys being a killer. That's right. I'm sure he enjoyed being a killer alive too, but he yeah. really enjoys it now. Yeah, he really likes playing with his food. <laughs> <laughs> it's a cat and mouse game, really, the whole thing for him. Oh, it is. So finally we get to Nancy. And uh, Craven said that he wanted someone very non-Hollywood for the role of Nancy. Poor Nancy. <laughs> and he believed uh, Langenkamp met this quality. So she, Langenkamp, who had appeared in several commercials and, and a TV movie, had taken off from her uh, studies at Stanford to continue acting. So eventually she landed the role of Nancy Thompson after an open audition, beating out more than 200 other actresses. Oh, really? Like yeah. who else? I, uh, well, that's coming up. So Lane Kemp had already known, uh, was already known to casting director Annette Benson after she had auditioned for Night of the Comet and Last Star- Starfighter, previously losing out both times to Catherine Mary Stewart. Who would be a great Nancy? I'm yeah. not going to lie. Yeah. So Demi Moore, Courtney Cox, Tracy Gold, and Jennifer Grey have all been rumored to have auditioned for A Nightmare on Elm Street, but Benson definitely ruled out Moore and Cox while also being unsure of Gold and Gray. So Langenkamp returned as Nancy in uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors from 1987 and also played a fictionalized version of herself, of course, in Wes Craven's New Nightmare from 1994. We're going to get into it a year from now, whenever we start talking about A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. Yeah. But <clears throat> Nancy's triumphant return to the franchise in that movie is like everything that I really fucking needed, you know? Dream Warriors or... Dream Warriors. Okay. Like, I I thought, like, I, it was so great to see that character come back, right? And I think, smartly, she skipped a movie in the franchise, and it was written in such a way. Like, it was a, a really good 
successor to the original Nightmare on Elm Street. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We have a whole year to get ready and talk about that shit. That's right. So then we're casting Glenn now, and this is obviously Johnny Depp. Okay. Uh, but he was another unknown when this was cast and initially accompanying his friend, Jackie Earl Haley, <laughs> who went on to play Freddy in the 2010 remake to an audition. So according to Depp, the role of Glenn was originally written as a big blonde beach jock football player guy, uh, far from his own appearance, but Wes Craven's daughters picked Depp's headshot from the set he had shown them. He's super cute in this movie, so I can see why they would do that. But that is a really interesting tidbit. Yeah, that his friend was Jackie Earl Haley. Oh my God. Who also played Rorschach in uh, the mm-hmm. Watchmen movie. I like him as an actor. I think he's great. He's very intense. Yes. So uh, Charlie Sheen was actually considered for the role, but allegedly wanted too much money. I can see that, too. He says he didn't. He said he didn't get crazy and and, and uh, greedy with money until much later in his career, but he was definitely in talks to play the movie. I think he might have even done some pre-production. Really? I could see Charlie Sheen in that role. But Johnny Depp, I think, is really good in this movie. He's like... And it's better than having some big blonde, you know, beach jock football player guy. You know what I mean? Like Glenn is the guy next door, like literally yeah. in this movie. And he's like characterized like that. I mean, it's not even sure. I mean, like there's some moments where they kiss and stuff like, you know, but like they have this weird, like almost like childlike relationship going on compared to like Ron, Rod and Tina, you know? And so I feel like, like Johnny Depp looks like, who Glenn is. Yes. And that's a much better choice than having some like hulking guy walking around. I agree. So finally they're filming and principal photography actually began in June of 1984, same year it was released and lasted a total of only 32 days in and around Los Angeles, California. It's a quick shoot. Yep. So during production, over 500 gallons of fake blood were used for special effects production in one scene. Yeah. And for the blood geyser sequence, uh, when Johnny is killed, the filmmakers used the same revolving room set that was used for Tina's death, just redressed. And when filming uh, the actual scenes, the cameraman and Craven uh, himself were mounted in fixed seats taken from a Datsun B210 car while the set rotated. The film crew converted the set and attached the camera so that it looked like the room was right side up, and then they poured the red water into the room. They used dyed water because the special effects blood didn't have the right look for a geyser. And during filming the scene... The uh, the red water poured out in an unexpected way and actually caused the ro- the rotating room to actually start spinning. Mm. So in that final shot, you can actually see the the blood kind of start to curve a little bit, which makes it look to me even more supernatural. And I like that effect. But that was unintentional. So much of that water spilled out of the bedroom window, covering Craven and Langenkamp in blood. So the in the documentary, they show parts of this like behind the scenes, like video shots, but they don't talk about any of that. So that's fucking interesting. Like Craven and Lane kept getting covered in blood. <laughs> it's neat the way they built that set, though. It's kind of neat to watch them build it and how it worked. Like, yeah. Yeah. like on a big gimbal or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I loved it. Sure. So the scene where Nancy is attacked by Kruger in her bathtub was accomplished in a special bottomless tub. The tub was put in a bathroom set that was built over a swimming pool. Ooh. So they actually shot it that way above and below. That's neat. I really like that scene too, though. Like, and I, that kind of explains the way it looks when she's being pulled under, right? Because it looks super real. And now, now we know why. It's an iconic scene, actually. Mom, what's wrong? <laughs> Nothing. I know. I just mm-hmm. fell asleep. So let's talk about the themes of this movie a little bit, of which there are not Legion, but you know, there are many, many. I think some of the themes in this movie are kind of like. 
front and center, easy to see. And I mean, the movie does a good job at explaining them throughout it. So yeah. Yeah. And and we haven't seen themes like, I mean, we've seen themes like this before and during and since, but we're seeing a really emer- emergence or reemergence of like the sins of the father, interracial uh, trauma. Mm-hmm. And this one really is kind of like the sins of the parents being visited upon the children. For sure. When I was watching it on this rewatch, like that was like, present in my brain the whole time i was just like these kids obviously are paying for the mistakes or the actions of their parents that came before right sure and instead of going after the parents like freddie is a child murderer he's going to go after the teenagers instead and still show these parents that they didn't do shit to stop him right and i think this is something that i had noticed before in this movie it's it's pretty pretty clear the thing that i started to notice more on this rewatch and probably because i'm an old ass man at this point is that the parents themselves are fully traumatized oh yeah which we've already talked about a little bit in the episode and it has to be hush hush they can't really talk about it right so i mean like these people sort of know each other they have like a a a knowing look between each other of things that happened killed this guy on their own right and but they all are experiencing something in their own way. Like Nancy's mom is a drunk and divorced from her father, right? Who's like thrown himself into his work. Glenn's parents are obviously, you know, mean. And uh, even Tina's mom is absent for the most part. She she invites everyone over to that sleepover, right? These parents are dealing with something that they had done in their past in their own particular ways. And their children are sort of paying the price for it. Yeah. And the thing is, is that even if these parents had been more present, you know, if Nancy's mom hadn't been drinking so much, it doesn't matter because Freddy Krueger would still come and get Nancy no matter how sober her mom happened to be. Yeah, it's a vengeance tale because, yeah. I mean, he's not going back to kill those parents. He's, he's killing their their children. Like, hey, I'm going to do it anyway. You could never stop me. Exactly. You know, and this is going to cause the most pain versus the most death, you know. And we also see, of course, that Buffy style, like horrors of adolescence in which, of course, there's an episode of Buffy, at least one episode that really copycatted this movie. Mm-hmm. This is when she's in the hospital, the asylum or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I like that episode. Yeah. It goes around and t- like kills kids in a feverish state or something mm-hmm. and preys upon them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that that's been done, been said. I don't know if we can say any more about it. Um, there's also that the huge 80s trope, of course, sex is bad and death by sex trope. And that had been rampant already. I mean, like Friday the 13th yeah. really like hit the nail on the head with that one, you know? Oh, sure. Cemented the fact that if you are having sex. I love that word, but not you just used, by the way. What? Cemented. <laughs> Pun intended. Uh, <laughs> that if you're having sex, you know, underage or unmarried, like that is considered bad and you're going to die for it. I mean, we also can't forget that AIDS is happening around this time, right? And I think there's a lot of, you know, <clears throat> attributing that sex is bad to that. Sure. Right? Like, you're going to die if you have sex because people were dying from having sex in the real world. Yeah. So Tina dies immediately after having sex with Rod. Glenn's death is a variation on the trope, dying after watching Miss Nude America. On just regular television. And really, sexuality is present in Freudian images and is also exclusively displayed in a threatening and mysterious context, like Tina's death visually evoking a rape, mm-hmm. Freddie's glove between Nancy's legs in the bath. And the original script called for Kruger to actually be called straight up a child molester rather than a child murderer before being murdered. I think it's heavily implied enough to think that he was also a molester. Yes, really. Yeah. Why else would you be a child murderer? Right. <laughs> um, 
and Tina's death does evoke kind of a rape, but I feel like visually the the number one sex is bad thing, or at least like having some sort of sexual having some like sexual imagery mm. really is that bathtub scene when her legs are splayed right oh, yeah. and that glove comes up right between them like that is it's uncomfortable looking you have no idea what he's going to do with those finger knives i've seen quite a few posters with that yeah on. i mean it's and it's it's kind of iconic it's an iconic shot people have recreated it a lot you know and i don't know it's just it makes me uneasy but that's a really good moment in the movie yeah so Robert England actually observed that, quote, in Nightmare, all the adults are damaged. They're alcoholics, they're on pills, they're not around. And Blakely says the uh, parents in the film verge on being villains. England adds, the adolescents have to wade through that, and Heather is the last girl standing. She lives. She defeats Freddy. Langenkamp agrees. Nightmare is a feminist movie, but I look at it more as a youth power film. I would see it more as a youth power film than a feminist movie. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. I mean, you're right. These kids are having to like wade through their lives. Right. And I feel like that could easily be a comment on eighties culture as well. Right. If we look back, I mean, like we're from a certain generation, right. You and I, and we look, we look back on like my time in the eighties or nineties. Like I stayed at home by myself all the time. My parents had jobs. Well, you're like tail end of generation X, right? Yeah. I was born in 79. And and so what are they calling me? A geriatric millennial? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is what I'm going to call you forever. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I feel like, having parents that aren't around necessarily isn't a bad thing. I mean, I turned out okay. And I mean, it was just the eighties people were doing things, but <laughs> people were doing things in the eighties. They were doing things in the eighties and they weren't watching their children. Apparently. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. That was like the first generation of the, what were they called? Latchkey kids. Latchkey kids. Yeah. Yeah. I was definitely one. The divorce generation all that. So this movie uh, did more than just have tropes and and beget tropes, right? It was also influenced by some things and then did a lot of influencing. So when I think about things that maybe as I watched this film, things that could have influenced outside of what we already know from the real world, I think about Black Christmas. I think about Halloween. I think about some of the other slasher movies that have come before, you know, and I think of Stephen King's stories. Um, you know, uh, that had come out before that. And I'm also thinking about student bodies, which we've, we've, we've deep dove black Christmas. We've deep dove Halloween. We've deep dove, uh, student bodies, Mm -hmm. which is a parody film from 1981. And it has that phone sequence, right? Where someone calls her on the phone, it's the breather or whatever. And it's like literally cum is coming out of the phone. That's right. And then this movie has the tongue coming out of the phone. And so all of that is parodying black Christmas. Right. And so it's like Black Christmas went to student bodies, went to a, a nightmare on Elm Street. And so it's all kind of cyclical and interesting in that way. So it's like it goes to the parody and then springs back out horror again. So it's just really interesting to me. I agree. It is interesting. And the thing is, that I feel like horror is cyclical. Right. I mean, not in just a sense that, you know, like horror is like has a renaissance every couple 10 years, or whatever, a decade or so. But <clears throat> this movie essentially has studied all these movies, right? Well, yeah, and that's part of what parody does, is it trying to bring everything up to such an insane level 
or bring it to a next level so so over the top that it's funny mm-hmm. and saying oh actually that's that's actually pretty a good idea let's take that and actually twist it into something actually scary and that's kind of what Wes Craven did in this movie right he's taken some things he's been a student of like early slasher films and by the time 1984 we had had just a shit ton of slasher movies, either like direct video or in grindhouse theaters and things like that. And he has seen all that. Everyone's seen all that. He's trying to do something new, right? Yeah. I also think it's really funny that he does the exact same thing in the nineties by making scream. It's like he parodied all these movies, but re traumatized it. Yes. Again, to make it legit horror. And then took everything that he had seen before and had made before. And then he parodied it. On himself for for that particular movie, right? And I want to say that he influenced through this, uh, you know, back circling back around to like Stephen King's It. I see a lot with uh, Pennywise and Freddy Krueger. And Pennywise was not created until after this came out. That was 1987, right? And so this is rattling around in Stephen King's brain because he goes out and sees every horror movie and has for decades, right? And then even now, even though that's not the way it happens in the book, It Chapter 2 they kill it by refusing to fear it mm-hmm. right and belittling it and that's how she deals with freddie at the end of this movie and so it just like reintegrated itself back into that story which is interesting i mean Pennywise essentially is freddie krueger in like our particular like in a more cthulian kind of sense yeah yeah i mean but he exists in our dimension or whatever you know what i mean not in some sort of like dreamscape kind of thing right yeah but he knows exactly what scares you and so does freddy krueger and that's what makes him such an iconic villain who can do whatever he wants yeah to you but i would i also want to say like supernatural horror wasn't you know uh, certainly in the slasher genre something that was huge i don't think but for freddy krueger and uh you you see a little bit of supernatural and things like you know rosemary's baby and obviously the hammer horror films yes in a very kind of Frankenstein or Dracula kind of way, but not wholly original. No, I mean, there were supernatural horror films, right? But the combination of the two really hasn't been done. Certainly in sci-fi, you know. Yes. But something that was purely original, super supernatural versus science fiction, I feel like it was a little bit lighter on the ground, thinner on the ground. No, and you're right, because if things were supernatural, it would have to do with, like, ghosts and stuff like that, which there weren't a whole lot of in the 80s. I was was that marketable or whatever? Yeah, this isn't exactly any of that. It's very original. But if if I think about, like, the slasher subgenre as a whole, like, there's really not, aside from A Nightmare on Elm Street, a supernatural slasher movie. And I don't know that most people view Freddy Krueger as a ghost in their mind space. Like, that's exactly what he's supposed to be. I mean, he's essentially a pol- an organized poltergeist, you know, who only exists inside your subconscious. Essentially, yeah. that's how he can get to you is in your dreams. That's an interesting conversation to have. And I think we should put a pin in it as we move through the franchise. Right. Because like, what is Freddy Krueger? Like, essentially, is he a demon? Is he a ghost? Is he? I mean, he can't be a demon because he was a human. Right. I don't know. It's an interesting conversation and one that I'm not sure that we would have the answer to. Well, yeah, and there's some exceptions in the in the in the movies too. Oh yeah, as the franchises go on, I think New Nightmare, especially where he is a demon versus everything right. else, I think he really is supposed to be the ghost of this person. It's interesting. I like it. Yeah, a slasher that uh, is a ghost. So as far as like moving past things that it kind of influence, like the Stephen King verse. I want to say like every slasher fantasy hybrid film that came after this, Chucky, Freaky, Happy Death Day, Fear Street, The Babysitter, mm-hmm. 
uh, or the slow supernaturalization of existing slashers like Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees, where they're starting to kind of wrap in or elude that there's a supernatural quality to this. And that's what I like most about Freddy is that like there's no middle ground with him, right? We know that it's supernatural from the get-go. Clearly, he's invading people's dreams. Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees took movie upon movie upon movie to sort of like that would be the only explanation as to why they're sequels, right? Clearly, yeah. there's something supernatural about them. It's never fully expressed, right? I mean, but Jason Voorhees is a child who had drowned, who is suddenly a grown man killing people after sequels, you know? Yeah, and I also I also think it's fascinating outside of the ghost realm or the demon realm to think of this as, as kind of like a mind virus in a way. Ooh, you know, kind of like Slenderman. And we saw the people murdering each other because they thought Slenderman was real and, and stuff like that. And people having the same nightmares and creating kind of like a collective unconscious. Another movie that this might have influenced in a way is The Empty Man. Yes, I can see that. I mean, because a lot of this has kind to do. Kind of bringing that concept home. Yeah. I mean, because a lot of this has to do with like urban mythology. Right? A collective unconsciousness really making something real. So real. That's true. Or real enough that it actually manifests in some way. We got to talk about that movie at some point, too. <laughs> yeah. But off mic today, Chris and I were having a conversation about a movie that we both really, really love. And he told me something and I fully agree with it. So, oh, I would say like the most spiritual successor of this movie outside of like the direct sequels or remakes or things that are outright trying to copycat, you know, as far as this concept and themes, especially with like adults roles in these child's lives uh, or these, these, you know adolescent lives mm-hmm. is it follows and that kind of blew my fucking mind today when you were talking about that because i did not put those puzzle pieces together but you're right it follows is a really good successor to a nightmare on elm street maybe not the franchise as a whole it's like a modernization of the concept yes and of it this particular movie for sure i think that it's a, it's a good continuation of that or it, it it feels like a very similar kind of movie, yeah. right? There's something that you cannot control that is supernatural, that is coming after you, sort of sl- slasher style. Yeah. It also has to do with sex, right? Yeah. And for for the continuation of horror movies throughout time, like they're not exactly sex positive, right? So it follows for sure is not. Yeah. I also want to say, it's like bringing this back down to earth a little bit, Home Alone. I feel <laughs> like the entire Home Alone thing is based on her you know, montage of like tricking up her house, you know, that booby trapping montage. Yeah. I don't know if the parent trap had any, like maybe, but like, I feel like this could have had definitely had some influence on home alone. Yes, for sure. I mean, doesn't he uses something very similar too? I mean, she has that sledgehammer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen home alone in a long time, but I'm having a recovered memory and I'm sure there's something hitting someone. Every kind of conceivable trap. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good moment in this movie, too. Like, I really enjoyed that booby trap setup moment. I think I enjoyed the setup more than the follow through. You know what I mean? Because it all happened so quickly. Yeah. But when she's setting everything up, I'm like, bitch, she's so bad. I was just like, yes. (laughs) I love that part. The exploding light bulb, all that stuff. Love it. Uh, But the most, I want to say, like the outright copycatting is from Stranger Things, uh, especially season four. Which I have seen. You see a lot of Stephen King, you see a lot of Spielberg, and you see a lot of, uh, especially in this, you see a lot of Nightmare on Elm Street. They even had uh, Robert England in this season. People that I know, I mean, other than you, you've already told me that I would enjoy season four a lot. Oh, right. Yeah. And the entire show itself. But they catch you in a a trance or in a dream, 
and you start to rise up on the floor and every bone in your body is broken in front of whoever's watching. Yeah. And I'm, it's fucking sick. I need to watch it because literally <laughs> everybody that I know is like, have you seen this? Like you would love it. And I'm like, why? And they start talking about it. And every single person has said a night on Elm street to me. Cause they know how much I love it. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. I mean like this season has gone straight up horror, you know, and it's not perfect. Uh, you know, it's a little overlong in my opinion, but definitely visceral horror in there. I think we've talked about some of the iconic scenes already, like peppered throughout this conversation. Right. Yeah. We've already talked about Tina's death, which is kind of horrific looking and, and scary. We've talked about, um, Glenn's death with the geyser. And, and if it was just a beat longer, it would have been straight out of like airplane or something. Yes. <laughs> or repossessed. Yes. Especially that one. Because <laughs> she's rolling around on that ceiling for like hours, I feel like. But the scariest moment in this movie for me is when Nancy falls asleep in her English class. Right? I don't I don't know why, but I'm completely affected by it. When when she, she wakes up, like the act of waking up. No, or? no, no. The dream part. So like to have that kid that's reading Shakespeare, right? Like literally reading Shakespeare, and it sounds creepy, and you can barely hear it. It goes to that kind of lower timbre, right? And, and starts saying kind of darker things, and until he gets to that one fucking moment about dreams, right? And she kind of realizes that she's in a dream, yeah. but seeing her friend in that fucking body bag or whatever, like I just with fucking, the centipede and all that, which they lost on set, by the way. Oh Jesus Christ! Really? That would scare the shit out of me too. <laughs> But no, I mean, I just think that moment is effective, right? And it, it's scary. It's dreamlike. It's bloody. I just, I really, really like that moment. I think it's fairly iconic. Yeah. Plus, I like that fucking hall monitor or whatever. <laughs> Where's your pass? Was that Punky Brewster? <laughs> That's what I said out loud. Is this a lay moon fry? <laughs> Screw your pass. <laughs> Also off mic today, Chris and I were talking about one specific quote from this movie where Nancy says, Oh my God, I look like I'm 20 years old. And I like literally was pissed. I wrote a note on my phone. Fuck you. Yeah. So I wrote, fuck you. (laughs) I look 20. (laughs) I wish. Maybe if I stop sleeping, I'll look 20 years old. What are some of these fun facts? Oh my gosh. Well, first off, Robert Ingen cut himself the first time when he tried the infamous Freddy glove. Of course. Why didn't they give him the prop glove? I mean, my God. (laughs) Because he just went, he literally went and just cut his wrist like, or his finger or something, you know, they were that sharp because they were meant to cut things on set. Why didn't they just give him the one that wasn't going to hurt him? <laughs> That's so fucking dangerous. Yeah. And he said they were that sharp. Like, like he literally could have, if they had put the wrong prop on his hand at any point during that movie, he could have killed or maimed people very easily. There was a two week period where they couldn't even pay their cast and crew. They obviously couldn't afford insurance. So, I mean, like... well, they didn't cast fucking Alec Baldwin. So I guess they're safe. <laughs> Too soon. (laughs) (laughs) So an omen that Johnny Depp's character is about to die occurs as he's lying in bed listening to his radio. The broadcaster announces it's midnight and you're listening to KRGR, right? KRGR is Kruger without the vowels. I didn't notice that. Yeah. And in his room, Glenn has a stuffed vulture doll just behind his bed (laughs) that looks down on him. (laughs) I'm waiting for him to die. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a poster that says he's about to die now. <laughs> and his mom said that. <laughs> so Zhu Zhu? I don't know. Zhu? Zhu Garcia, who was cast as Rod and credited as Nick Corey, says the production was difficult for him. He was dealing with depression due to recent homelessness by snorting heroin in the bathroom between takes. 
Jesus Christ. So in 2014, he revealed that he was high on heroin during the scene with Langenkamp in the jail cell. She said, his eyes were watery and they weren't focused. I thought, wow, he's giving the best performance of his life. (laughs) (laughs) No, he was snorting heroin between takes. Oh my God. That explains a lot. Yeah. So about halfway through the movie, when Nancy is trying to stay awake, a scene from Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead appears on a television. Craven decided to include the scene because Raimi had featured uh, a Hills Have Eyes uh, poster in Evil Dead. And in return, Raimi featured a Freddy Krueger glove in the workshed scene of Evil Dead 2 and later in Ash vs. Evil Dead. Love it. Yep. Good for them. So Craven originally planned for the film to have a more evocative ending. Nancy kills Kruger by ceasing to believe in him and then awakens to discover that everything that happened in the film was an elongated nightmare. However, New Line leader Robert Shea demanded a twist ending in which Kruger disappears and all seems to have been a dream, only for the audience to discover that it was a dream within a dream within a dream. According to Craven, the original ending of the script has Nancy come out of the door it's an unusually cloudy and foggy day. A car pulls up with her dead friends in it. She's startled. She goes out and gets in the car, wondering what the hell's going on, and they drive off into the fog with the mother left standing on the doorstep, and that's it. It was very brief and suggestive that maybe life is a sort of dream, too. That's a good ending. So Shay wanted Freddy Krueger to be driving the car and have the kids screaming in it. It all became very negative. Craven said, I felt a philosophical tension to my ending. Shay said, that's so 60s, it's stupid. I refused to have Freddie in the driver's seat, and we thought up about five different endings. The one we used, with Freddie pulling the mother through the doorway, amused us all so much we couldn't not use it. I mean, she does look like a sex doll. She does. <laughs> For sure. And that's why I wrote it for you to say in the synopsis. <laughs> huh? Um, I like the original idea of this ending. And I think that you can see like some of that ending in the documentary. Um, and Bob Shea got to have Freddie driving a vehicle very quickly as that's what happens in the Nightmare on Elm Street too. That's right. So there are several deleted scenes, such as one where Marge, Nancy's mom reveals to Nancy that she had another sibling who was killed by Freddie. Is oh. this taken advantage of in any of the sequels? No. So I thought that might be interesting. That is kind of interesting. Yeah. I would like to see where that would go. Yeah. So she would have had an older sibling that was killed. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So Freddy Krueger has less than seven minutes of screen time. <laughs> the fuck? Oh my. And this movie? Yeah, yeah. I guess you're right. That's He's it. barely in it and you can barely see him. Yep. Which is good because I remember thinking that on this rewatch. There's a lot was, of Freddy silhouette in this movie. Yes. I was like, there's a lot of Freddy shadow going on, but you don't really get to see his face. Nope. And when you do, it's it's gross, like cuts of his skin with like maggots and shit coming out. Oh, you know what I mean? Yeah. And you, you never really get to see the full on makeup effects on him until at least the sequel. Yeah. And even then it's still kind of rare. Well, those were fun facts and you succeeded by telling me things that I did not know about this franchise. Kind of peppered throughout, right? You're yeah. Like waiting for long periods of deserts of things that you already knew. No, I mean like I, just because I like movies a lot doesn't mean that I know everything about their history. Right. Which is why I like having conversations with you. Cause you will take the time that I will not to learn everything about its production. And I mean, like I, I tend to focus a lot on what I see visually and I've, I've seen this movie 
I don't even know. Dozens but you've also of times. seen those documentaries, which I hadn't seen. So, and the I mean, the thing is, the, the documentary is long. You know what I mean? Like four and a half hours long, and there's so much information in it. I had to watch it a second time, and I still haven't gotten everything there. It's an excellent, excellent documentary. Okay. Well, I mean, I there's a lot of stuff that I still know, like that centipede getting lost, you know, and, and other details that I just didn't put on the notes because they're just not – they're either too tertiary or just like not fun enough of a fact or something, you know. I'm glad you told me that though because I don't like centipedes, just like I don't like maggots. Yeah. So and eventually so- – they originally they tried – to get the a fake rubber centipede to go after out of the actresses uh-huh. thing, but they're like it looks like shit so they made a maquette of her face like an animatronic and then had a real centipede go after it but in the middle of filming it like went to the floor and then like squiggled somewhere else and they found it again <laughs> and then d- and completed the shot finally <laughs> i love it see that's a fun fact but it all looked real. her face looked real to me so it did i didn't know it was an animatronic either because her, her mouth kind of opens a little bit i thought and then it comes out i mean do you think it's super dangerous to have a centipede in someone's mouth no i mean i just don't think no just nobody wants to do it she probably pulled like a sigourney weaver and was like i'll do it for sixty thousand dollars <laughs> <You know? laughs> so yeah jillian anderson would have done it that's right for free <laughs> she ate crickets on x-files those were fun facts i really really enjoyed that but we have some questions to ask about A Nightmare on Elm Street, and uh, we're going to skip the first one, because obviously this is a horror movie, yep. right? Clearly. Mm-hmm. Were you scared while watching A Nightmare on Elm Street? Probably the first time I saw it, but not this time. Definitely the first time. It's not consistently as scary for me. Uh, it's like uh, seeing the the origins of the horror that we see today, or even later on in the 80s and 90s, and seeing its origin, and kind of objectively and, and interesting and amusing to me but not really scary anymore. Mostly because I know everything that happens and because I've seen every sequel and, or I think most of them, if not all of them, I don't know. Some of them are erased, (laughs) burned from my memory on purpose. (laughs) And rightfully so. Uh, I kind of attribute a nightmare on Elm street as being like my foray into horror. Like I had, I had already seen things like Dawn of the dead because my parents were watching it and whatnot. But like, honestly, I remember my parents watching a nightmare on Elm street too. With their friends and I was supposed to have gone to bed, right? But I kept getting up and I was sort of hiding in the background, like watching the movie, right? And I was completely enamored of Freddy Krueger. And it was years later that I finally got to see the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. And he just became like one of my favorite things ever, right? I just, I really, really dig this movie and I think it's Welcome to horror movies, bitch. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's exactly what it was. He might as well have picked me up and thrust me into the television. So I just love Freddy Krueger and I, I like this concept. I think it's neat and it's scary. It scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. I think the first time I ever saw it, the thing that scared me the most outside of the concept was uh, him, him doing the whole rope and seeing the rope move in reality from the dream around the guy's neck. Oh, that's right. From the jail cell. The, not the rope, but the, the bed sheets. Right. Right. And him being able to affect the real world in real time unequivocally. And the fact that there's there's no explanation needed for any of that, you know what I mean? Just just by having things happening in a dream makes everything else that happens in this movie completely acceptable to me. Yeah. Like clearly it's it's in the real world and it's kind of an elongated like knife wrapping that sheet around it to hang him, right? It's all like connected and neat and just yeah. frightening, just truly, truly frightening. There's a lot of really good visual moments, gross out moments in this movie that I think kind of lose their effect over time or maybe with age. 
The phone thing specifically is kind of silly at this point. Yeah, you know, and I'm thinking that bedsheet kill is different from all of his other kills across all of the franchise because he doesn't give a shit if people see a bloody scene. No. Or attribute it to, to something else. And in fact, I mean, like, as the franchise grows and he starts to kill people, like, the effects of what it looks like in real life happen more and more frequently. Yeah. And, it, like, it I sort of it was, is less scary. I think it was, like, the subtlety and, and feeling of inevitability of that kill that I think freaked me out the yeah. first time I saw this. That's good. That was deep, man. I love that. So, out of five stars, what would you rate A Nightmare on Elm Street? In 1984 money? I'd give it a five star. Yeah. In 2022, I have to give it a four. I'm right there with you. So when I watched this movie last weekend, I gave it four and a half stars. And I was happy with that for the rest of that day. And then I started thinking about it. And I was just like, "Eh, maybe not. So I started watching it again last night. You know, I made it about halfway through the movie before I was getting a little tired and had to go to bed. But I woke up thinking and I was just like, no, this is not a four and a half star movie. I am rating this movie with my fucking nostalgia boner. Yeah. Unfortunately, this movie has suffered from critical inflation. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I need to lower my rating to four stars. I mean, this is it's an excellent movie. It's very good. It's iconic for for really good reasons. Yeah. And we can't overstate how much this was influential. You know, like this is the foundation upon which. You know, cathedrals are built in horror. You know what I mean? So uh, I want to be careful to to say that. And I feel like like what what you just said, you know, in terms of like monetary value, Freddy Krueger made horror mainstream again. Right. Or maybe for the first time, even things are sort of relegated to like grindhouse cinemas. And once Freddy Krueger became a thing and started making money, man, I mean, like at the theater, there was horror movie after horror movie after horror movie. Yeah. So, I mean, the influence on the genre, the influence on the market, everything about this movie is pop culture at this point. So four stars, not four and a half, certainly not five at this point. No. So finally, who's the hottest guy in A Nightmare on Elm Street? You know, traditionally I'd say Rod, but actually I'm starting to think of Johnny Depp in this movie. (laughs) That little football midriff he's wearing. Yes. (laughs) In that bed. Yeah. I love that little crop top. We need more guys in crop tops in horror movies, honestly. But I still like her dad, too. Like, and he was from Black Christmas Mm -hmm. as also as a police chief or whatever. John Saxon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I feel like Rod for me. Like, I don't know. I just, I mean... He's a traditional bad boy. He's hardly got a shirt on in this movie. Like, I just, I think he's cute. He's dreamy. But Johnny Depp is also in a guy next door kind of way. Really cute. Not an obvious way. I mean, he looks better in this movie than he does in Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, but I guess he rotten. I mean, he's that unapproachable, toxic masculine stereotype that Mm -hmm. queens generally love to. That's right. Show me that rod. Well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on A Nightmare on Elm Street. As always, we want to know what you think about this movie and our conversation. Did you learn some things? You can tell us on social media at The Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And now we have a TikTok. You can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call our hotline at 972-666-7733. Finger me. Oh my god. (laughs) Blow me in the bathtub? I don't know. (laughs) 
one, two, Freddy's coming on you. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was gross. <laughs> <laughs> we have some more Nightmare on Elm Street franchise coming out for you this September, so stay tuned next week when we talk about a Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. The gay one. The gay one. <laughs> And then also on Patreon, we're going to give you a Wes Craven poll. If it's not already up, go over there and check it out where we're going to give you a lot of choices for us to derp dive over on Patreon. So if you join us for on Patreon, that's uh, early episodes and all of our bonus content for as little as $2. So join the family and uh, let us know what you want us to watch. That's right. It's right over there on patreon.com slash the film flamers. And as always, we need those reviews over on iTunes or Apple podcasts. Please head over there. Give us a five star review. Tell us why you like us. We're going to read that on shooting the flames. It also helps us as we are on the verge of joining rotten tomatoes as official critics. So let your voice be heard by our voice being heard and um, review us so that we can get to 100 reviews. That's right. We really need to be on Rotten Tomatoes, guys. We talk about them every episode. We bring it to you every ball. Okay, just help us get there. (laughs) All right, Chris. We've talked about dreams so much in this episode. It's time to go off and have some of our own, right? But will it be possible to have sweet dreams? I don't know. Maybe if we say it. Sweet dreams. It was gay. It was really gay. <laughs> I'm just preparing myself for next week. That's right. We're already in the mind space. We're already in that leather bar mind space. <laughs> <laughs>